Greetings, everyone. This is Richard Earls, the publisher of Travel Research Online, speaking to you from Tallahassee, Florida. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of TRO Signal. We're going to do things just a little bit differently in this episode. I've invited travel professional Linda Philippi to join me as a co-host to both liven up the conversation and to give you the occasional break from my West Virginia accent. <laughs> Linda joins us from Portland, Oregon. Linda, you guys have had your hands full recently. Have things calmed down a bit? Yes, they actually have calmed down. It's Portland. I don't live in Portland. I live about an hour out of Portland. Oh, okay. Portland is a city where people will go protest over, you know, a a dog in the street. It's a very protesty activist city. So it's been quite the summer and apparently quite the fall. And we'll, yeah, between that and the fires, it's it's, it's been an interesting few months. I mean, it's the 12th plate. Right. You just kind of had an extra one or two. Yeah, (laughs) apparently. Yeah. Well, as you well know, Linda, I love you totally. And and one of the best characteristics about you is you always look like you're having a good time. (laughs) So so welcome. Well, that's good. Now, now I often say that professors shouldn't wing it, but we are going to wing this a little bit with the co-hosting gig. And uh, we'll just kind of go at it like Bonnie and Clyde. Sounds great. um, You you know, we'll, we'll see how it turns out. Are you Bonnie or Clyde? Uh, Bonnie gets top billing, and you're the extrovert, so I'm going to give that to you. Okay. I'll, I'll be the girl this time, and you be the boy. <laughs> <laughs> There's all kinds of possibilities there. Right. Okay. So I'm really kind of wondering something. Linda, do you, do you have any special talents that you want to sort of lay right out on the table here? Do you have a special talent that you've developed that you feel is, is really indicative of your personality? All right, I'll tell you a little story. And this goes back like you know, 20 plus years. I was part of the Arts Alliance of Yonhill County, which is a local arts organization. And, you know, I was on the board at the time and writing for their newsletter. And one day, one of the guys who uh, is a, was a Linfield professor came in and he said he had a talk show. He had a local interview show on, on public access television. And he said, I really feel like we should do, you know, something for the arts. And we should call it Arts Alive. And we should interview local artists in Yamhill County on TV. And I was like, oh, my God, how totally fun. And, but, and then he said, do we have any volunteers? And I literally sat on my hands. I sat on my own hands because I didn't want to say, me, me, pick me, pick me, pick me. The room fell dead silent. And finally, Frank says, will no one step up to take this responsibility? And I said, I will. And everybody said, perfect, do it, do it. And that was 19 years I did that that show. Wow. So I, I you know, it's like just like you, Joey, you learn as you go and mm. it's it, you know, over time people said, gosh, you're really good at this. You're really, really good at this. And so I guess that's my my skill. Well, this particular episode is all about talent. And I'm gonna say something right up front. I don't believe in talent. I don't believe there's such a thing as talent. And I say that to my wife and she disagrees with me. She thinks some people are just talented. There are people that 
others describe as talented and they call them naturals. But the word talent hides a certain truth. I think it keeps us from trying new things because of a certain fear of failure. And if we say, well, I don't really have that talent, then we never have to get out there and, and chance it. And so what I want to do is look at some talents that you folks have brought to the fore that you didn't necessarily grow up with an instructor learning. And we're just going to kind of play with it a little bit, play with the concept. Linda and I are joined by three fellow travelers in the travel industry. And let me introduce them. And I'll remind you that their biographies and contact information are going to be on today's show notes. Joey Deloach is a travel writer and an editor for TRO. Several years ago, Joey came to work for me and he's become a really outstanding writer. But more interestingly, he's also started his own podcast, which he can tell you a little bit about and which I'll tell you is definitely not safe for work. And uh, (laughs) Joey has also decided that he's going to start doing stand-up comedy here in Tallahassee. He's done several shows, and that's a very brave act as far as I'm concerned. You know, something that a lot of people dream of doing, but to put yourself out there like that, I think is is quite a feat. Joey, welcome on board. Good to have you with us. I'm going to ask you this only because you work for me. Mm-hmm. You have clocked, you, you've clocked out, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. All right. <laughs> We're cool. So Barbara Oliver is a very good friend of mine. I've known her for years. She's a travel agent living in California. Linda, Barbara took on a bit of a project right after our COVID vacation all began. And I'm going to get her to describe a little bit of that to us. Okay. And Annette Easton is a travel agent in Canada. Oh. Annette, we've we've been Facebook friends for a long time, for years, I guess, but I'm, I'm not sure we've ever spoken, have we? I don't think so. And I'm not making that up. You are from Canada, right? I am definitely from Canada, yes. Born and bred. <laughs> it's always nice to have a, a Canadian on board with us. It uh, evens out the uh, evens out the, 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 the scales. For, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, are you, um, Annette, are you prepared to take political refugees? <laughs> uh, if you don't mind uh, the fact, are you talking about me personally or as a country? <laughs> <laughs> you personally. <laughs> like, pull out the spare bed, bedroom couch or whatever, yeah. If you you don't mind my seven cats, then absolutely. Okay, perfect. Do you really have seven cats? I really do have seven cats. All right. There's another episode coming up about pets. Okay. So we'll get into that. And then I'm actually going to use you as something of a case study because it was a really interesting encounter when I discovered that you would volunteer to be on the podcast. I loved your talent because I have attempted the same. And in, in doing that, I had this weird reaction. And the weird reaction was exactly what I'm going to advise everyone not to do. And so I just, I just kind of want to explore that a bit. So we're going to talk about it. Annette is a pumpkin carver. Yes. And having tried this, I know how difficult that is. I mean, literally, I carve stone for, for myself. It's a hobby. And it's much harder to carve a pumpkin. It just is more <laughs> difficult to carve a pumpkin. So tell me, how long have you been carving pumpkins, Annette? Uh, I believe I started somewhere around 2006. And I started because I uh, had wanted to do something a little different. To be honest, I am terrible at traditional pumpkin carving, like the, the traditional jack-o'-lantern. I don't do well at. I usually cut things off that aren't supposed to be cut off. Um, 
<laughs> Fortunately, nothing of mine, just usually on the pumpkin. <laughs> yes. So it, instead of having a nice toothy grin, it usually looks like it's toothless and uh, is a little uh, odd. And I've never really been happy with it. And then in the store one day, I saw this thing that looked really different. And it was more like doing an, an outline that wasn't all the way cut through. And I thought, that, that looks really interesting. And um, picked up the kit for it. And it was done in a really tedious fashion of... Um, you put the pattern on and you poked holes all the way through the lines. And then you had to, I think they wanted you to uh, coat it with flour so you could actually see the holes after and then use something to kind of scrape along. And it looked fine, but I thought there's got to be a better way of doing this. <laughs> and um, that's when I thought I have power tools. <laughs> and uh, I thought, yeah, because they, they wanted you using this little thing for scraping it off. I thought, I've got a Dremel. I'm pretty sure I can use that. There you go. So, okay, right. Wow. Yeah, so so I did that, and uh, I liked it. And so that was the first year, and I thought, I really, really like how this looked. And uh, discovered the next year that there's a whole online pumpkin community that <laughs> does stuff like this, except they usually yeah. do them on the foam craft pumpkins. And I, I don't personally like using those ones. I like to use the, the real pumpkins, which is a lot messier and a lot less, less permanent. So um, I kind of like that aspect because if I screw up, it doesn't matter. Right. So. How, many, how many pumpkins did you smash out of just aggravation? None. I've actually None? never never smashed a pumpkin in my life. So. Nice. Okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So well, I, I can talk about pies, though. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm more likely to make a pie out of aggravation. So. What you did your first pumpkin look like? Uh, I actually have a picture of it somewhere in my um, Facebook profile. I'll have to send that to you later. It wasn't that like you're talking my first pumpkin of this style or like ever. Well, no, you're the first one where you decided I'm going to become a pumpkin carver. The first one was that one, which was, uh, it, I mean, it's nice. It's a, it was a cat, of course, because I have quite an affinity for cats. And it was, in comparison to the things that I do now, fairly simplistic. It probably took me two hours to do because I had no idea really what I was doing and it was new to me. And now I could probably do it in 15 minutes. Wow. But yeah, but yeah, it was, a, it was a nice little cat and uh, it was enjoyable to do. And I really liked the way that it looked and I got a lot of comments on it. And I thought, this, this, is, this is really good. I need to try, try more of this. And, so that was uh, about 14, 15 years ago? Yeah, about 14 years ago. So, have you gotten any so better at it? I have gotten better at it, yes. I've gotten a lot better at it and I've branched out into doing things that a lot of my fellow pumpkin carvers only try with the foam ones because... Generally, you can spend a lot longer with the foam ones than you can with a regular pumpkin. And they're not as heavy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to return to your pumpkin because I'm, I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by your, your efforts. And because I had such a strange reaction to seeing your pumpkins, I mean, the works of art, what you, what you do is more like sculpting than carving. Right, yeah, kind it, of. Yeah, I bet people have seen your pumpkins and you've heard them say something like, I could never do that. I have heard that a lot, yes. Yeah. So that's that's a big part of what I want to talk about. And it's really important to the concept of, of talent. And that's what I'm going to address here with you guys. I, I want to pull some thoughts out of you on that. Linda, 
I seem to remember that I've seen you online a lot in photographs with children, right? Well, my family's actually not all that big. I've got four grandkids and I mean, two children, four grandchildren. So those are probably the, the kids you've seen me with the most and, you know, friends, children. Yeah. Occasionally it looks like you're being taken hostage. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> a little. Yeah, sometimes. Well, I'm, I'm struck by the way that children don't know any boundary. In their minds, they can do anything. Exactly. You, you can hand a child a guitar and they're going to mm. play it. And mm-hmm. you can hand them a drum and they're going to bang it. Right. And they're going to do that without any thought in the world of whether or not they're any good. And then as we age, we lose that ability to be wondrously naive. And we start to worry about people's opinion of us. And we start to worry about things like failure and how we're going to be judged. And so I think we sometimes start looking at people who do creative things and we say, man, they've got talent because that lets us off the hook. Right. I think, I think that you're right about that, that, you know, kids at some, at some point develop their self, their sense of self, their self-consciousness. And that's usually when I think some of the doubts and things creep in, you know, like we were talking earlier, messages you get from your family. Well, you know, your brother's better at that than you are. And then all of a sudden that just shuts the kid down, you know? And they, so it's like, okay, I'm not artistic. So I should never, ever try anything artistic again for the rest of my life. Unfortunately, I think kids tend to absorb some mm. of those messages. They take them to heart and maybe even the most offhand remark that a teacher makes or, you know, a parent makes and the kid just absorbs that like, I'm worthless. I'm, you know, I can never, I can never do anything like that. And it, it really does it, that, that fear or that, I don't know, shame, you might, you might even say it shuts children down. So then as adults, we have to go back in and, 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 and really say, and, it, and I think it takes a lot to, to come back and say, you know what, I do want to try that. I, I yeah, why not? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's really, it really has a profound impact on our psyche. And I don't understand why we do that to ourselves. Joey, does any of this sound familiar to you? Absolutely. I think we mostly control the way that we get excited and rise up in society because it's like a, it's like the old Chinese adage, which is like the stray nail gets hammered down. And it's like a self-regulation thing, but we do it to an extent that actually prevents us from having people that help us move forward. Sometimes mm-hmm. like even, even Albert Einstein was told he was dumb when he was a kid and that he would never do math. You know, he proved right. a lot of people wrong. <laughs> right. There's that, that thing about T- Thomas Edison's mother or something that the note came home and it was like, your child's an imbecile, keep him home. And, and, and she couldn't read the note. And his, he said, what's it say? And his mom said that you're this most brilliant, beautiful child and there's mm. no room for you there. And so we're going to have to teach you at home because they just, they can't cope with your brilliance or something. And had she read the original one, who knows what would have happened, but she didn't, she chose to, you know, really honor who he was and see this creative spark and intelligence within this child. And, you know, what a great parent. Barbara, let's look at what you accomplished during the beginning of of the COVID scenario that we're all living through right now. Can you kind of tell us what you did and how much previous experience you had? And Joey said something about a hammer and a nail. Um, I think (laughs) you you used a nail gun, I think. And that that may have been a a Second Amendment thing. I'm not sure. Um, But but tell, tell us what you did and how you went about it. Well, I've, I've always, I've just been one of these strange women who's always loved power tools. And uh, so my husband does all the cooking. So all the pots and pans and that kitchen gadgets are his and all the tools in the garage are mine. 
but we do, I mean, I've done things like put up all the double crown molding and, you know, that kind of stuff around the house, but COVID hit and we have talked, my husband is a voice um, director and actor, mostly doing anime. And as the entire country was, we all got paralyzed those first couple of weeks of like, how are we going to continue to pay the mortgage? How are we going to keep going? And we, he and I have talked about building him a, a voice isolation booth. And, you know, a lot of the actors will go into a closet with the clothes and that kind of stuff. But we wanted the, I wanted to build the space. So it gave me something to do rather than, you know, cry tears over everybody who was canceling. So I dove into researching sound designs, how to build stuff, how to build a, a voice isolation booth. And... I even had to look up, I mean, I've, I've watched, I love those construction shows, but I've never actually built a wall. So I had to look up YouTube videos on how do you place the two by fours in order to build, construct a wall, because it was a inside and an outside and foam in between and whatnot. And so much to the amusement of my neighbors, I was out on my front driveway building this elaborate thing. And Richard, something that you were saying, you know, was, is that we're afraid of failure. So if anybody who is my Facebook friends will know, I never said a word about it. I was building it for about five or six weeks, maybe, you know, I, or, you know, I was researching it and building it and whatever, but until I had the finished product, I didn't reveal it except to a few close friends. And it is, I'm a, I am by nature a perfectionist and it came out perfect. So I was really happy to, <laughs> to share it at that point. But I, you know, we just said, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. We needed to be able to keep the mortgage paid and the, the food and the toilet paper bought during all of this. So, so we just dove in and did it. Did you build it in your garage or where did you build it? Yeah, I, on my driveway and in my well, I built, built the walls and whatnot out on the on the driveway, and then we had to carry them. He, he's actually upstairs; his office is upstairs, so we had to oh, okay. upstairs. Oh, okay. So you put it into an existing room that was already yes, upstairs. Yes, it's a totally oh. freestanding oh. room within a room. Um, okay. And then living in Southern California, where it gets to you know 100 plus degrees during the summer, we knew he needed ventilation, so I had to research how to do that. Um, wow. so, you know, I'm at least I certain substances are legal in California. So me buying all the va- the fans and whatnot that you use for grow houses didn't put me on anybody's radar, <laughs> but so it's fully ventilated. It's wow. Yeah. So he's already recorded. Um, I know one movie and it's paid for itself already and wow. it's, it's there for, you know, for the, for the long haul. I researched the best way to do everything you know, and I was finding the best way to do things and this product and that product. And then I had to really reel myself back in and say, okay, the supply chain is severely limited for all these best things. So what can I source right here in my backyard at Home Depot and Lowe's? Right. And and that's what I went with. We did eventually get some products from specialty shops, but the, the majority of it was, was that. I have a question for you. Did you film any of the process as you were doing it? Did your husband film you? I had him take lots of pictures, but I didn't, okay. I didn't actually film it. Like I said, I wasn't sure how it was going to come out, but I do have picture evidence. We're going to pause for a moment and we'll be right back. Joey, Joey. Hmm? 
Tell me about the experience, the motivation and the experience of getting them up on stage and trying to make people laugh. Okay, well, let's start this out with, I'm even deathly afraid to do karaoke. Like I, I start, like I've tried to do it a couple of times in the past and I would just go totally white and my blood pressure would drop and I would feel oh. like I was about to pass out. Oh, wow. And, and this is on a few drinks too, where you're supposed to have courage, you know, a little liquid courage. And I would still get very nervous. And I would say probably about the age of like 37, I suddenly got to this place to where I really wanted to do things that I was afraid of. So I went, I went down the checklist and I was like, all right, get in front of an audience. I was like, I can do karaoke. I was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) You got to jump off the cliff. See with comedy, you don't get music. You don't get other people's lyrics. It's just you and a microphone. Mm -hmm. That's it. And a bunch of people staring at you just going, make me laugh. Come on, come on. (laughs) So it's, it's, it was nerve wracking and, uh, it really helps me. I mean, I still have anxiety attacks almost every time before I do comedy, although I haven't done comedy in like four months, five months. So, but. you know, um, Barbara Streisand is, is famous for like practically vomiting before she goes on stage from stage fright at her age with her experience, all the Grammys and accolades. So I think, mm-hmm. you know, that, that it probably sharpens. It, it, it brings a focus somehow you, to you. Yeah, you learn how to redirect it. It's mm-hmm. because all of that, I mean, I have a theory. I'm, listen, I don't have a PhD in anything, so don't take this to heart. But <laughs> I have a theory that anxiety is just energy that's not being utilized pretty much. Mm-hmm. Now, this is not to say everybody, I'm not doing a blanket statement here, but I do believe that you can turn a lot of that into energy and motivation. It's just more energy than you're used to because you're finding a passion mm-hmm. and you have to be able to focus that. And sometimes it's a little too much you know, for, for the moment or whatever it is when you're working on something, but that's part of the blood, sweat, pain, and tears that you do for a passion. So let me ask you this question. When you're on, when you're on stage and you're, okay, you've worked up your act and you're going to go out and you're, you've shopped it and all this, and now you're going to, in, in front of a live audience, mm-hmm. do you, are you the type to like sit on a stool? Do you pace the stage? You know, I see some comedians that really move around a lot. And I mm-hmm. assume a little bit of that is working the crowd. And I assume a little bit of it is nervous energy. So Absolutely. There's a lot of nervous energy involved in that. Um, mm-hmm. And if you're working the crowd, there's only very few comedians that really work crowds well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was more of a sit on the stool because I felt like if I stood up, I was going to pass out. Right. So, <laughs> to the audience, it looked like I was super comfortable that I was just kicking back on a stool and I'm like, whatever, yeah. you know, like you're holding oh, on for dear life. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. The gravity doesn't even mean anything at this point. And I'm just you know, like, mm-hmm. yeah. You're actually making my point. You can do this because you've got a passion for it. You wanted to conquer fear. You've got a passion for it. Your writing is all about your passion for writing. I know that you have ambitions to to do some fiction. And look at the time and experience and patience that went into 15 years, 14, 15 years of pumpkin carving. For Barbara to do the research that she did to build a sound booth. That's incredible. And then all the research, all of the technical skills that you have to develop to do that. This is why I say there's no such thing as talent. These are things that anyone could do if they wanted to. It was all about passion for you guys. You wanted to do this. You wanted to get it done. 
And what I think happens to us because of this kind of negativity bias that occurs to us through childhood, that we start fencing ourselves in. And it's fear of failure. It's the imposter syndrome. And that stops people from doing things that would inevitably amaze themselves if they took the time to develop the skill set necessary. A lot of people who say, I can't draw, have tried it one time. Right. And I know tons of people that look at the little carvings that I do in stone, and they say, I could never do that. Or they look at the, the pumpkins and they say, I could never do that. But they've never tried. Mm-hmm. Before they have even tried, they're assuming they can't do it. Now, I'm going to bring this back around to the travel industry. I hear travel professionals say all the time, they start their sentences with me with, I can't. And they don't know that. What they mean is, I haven't been trained. I haven't studied it. I haven't practiced it. I haven't done it. And that, does that resonate with you? Does that make any sense? Or am, I just, am I making this up? No, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of it is, you know, when they say, I, I can't, I, that's kind of a self-fulfilling uh, statement because you say you can't, so you can't. I think a lot of what it really means is not only I haven't tried, but I don't want to try. You know, I'm, I'm afraid of trying either. Some of it is I'm too lazy to try because, you know, I mean, yeah, a lot I of things, it, t- it takes time and patience and practice. Uh, no matter what you're looking at, if it's something that you haven't done before, then you don't, some people just don't want to take, put the time into uh, trying it. If they can't kind of get it right away, then it, then they think that they can't do it. You know, I think that's a really important point. And this is what was flashing through my mind as you were speaking was, I think, especially now with all the social media, right? Okay. So you see this fabulous thing or this person or the, whatever it's going to be. And what we, what we need to remember is we're looking at other people's highlight reel. You know, yes. we're, not looking at, we're not looking at the 100 pumpkins that look like crap. We're not looking at the 100 jokes that flopped. We're not looking at, you know, your smashed thumb or whatever, or whatever you've done or, or anything. I remember when I first started doing my television show, what, what surprised me the most was I have this image of myself inside my head. This is me. I'm super serious. I'm very intellectual, you know, but serious. And, you know, this, this is who I am. What I saw on camera was me laughing my face off, throwing my arms around like I'm at a party, having a seventh cocktail or something at 2.30 in the morning. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what I had to face about myself. It's like, Linda, you're not that serious. You're not, you're not some, like, intellectual giant. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> You know, and so if you want it to look different, if you want it to be different, you're going to have to hone some skills and, you know, go back and like athletes do. You're going to have to go watch, go watch the the game again and see, okay, this is what I should have done differently there. This Mm -hmm. is where I should have paused, you know, and, and learning and learning the craft of whatever it is that you're trying to do. But I think that we've just become so accustomed to seeing, oh, this influencer or this fabulous thing and thinking, I could never do that. I I could never do that. Well, neither could they when they started. However, I will say, Richard, I I kind of differ with you on one point. And I think that sometimes, you know, like you'll see the three-year-old playing Mozart or something, or you see a seven-year-old that draws something that looks like it was painted by, you know, an Italian master. I think some people, I think we all come into this life with um, 
you know, whatever we've brought from the last one, whatever, you know, whatever talents or gifts or innate things that we've got. But we also have proclivities, you know, something interests you. And if it interests you, you know, you maybe you spend your childhood reading about it, for example. And then so you're drawn to that. And that might not be necessarily such a talent, but I think it's it, it, it puts you in a direction to develop a talent. Well, I, I, I like the way you sneak that little karmic reference. <laughs> yeah, well, I know. Well, you know, in listening to this, and I think all of us have this here, um, I don't see it as, t- as necessarily talent, but I hear tenacity. And it's just the, des- the desire to do something and figuring out the steps it takes to get from point A to point B. My biggest, one of my biggest aha moments, I went back to college for my, for my bachelor's degree when I was in my 30s. So did I. <laughs> and, and I, and, and I, I failed the, the math placement test, you know, and I'm thinking, because I mean, when's the last time I did algebra, right? So I had to do an intermediate algebra class in order to be able to retake the test and, and get in. And math just intimidated me. We were always, we grew up hearing girls aren't good at math, blah, blah, blah. And it just scared me. And I stuck, I stuck with it. I was in this, this intermediate algebra class and I was, the class that was right after it was logical reasoning, which I excelled at. It's been diagrams and all of that. And I was literally walking from my intermediate algebra class where I felt totally overwhelmed and out of place to my logical reasoning class where one other student and I were actually acting as teacher's assistants and teaching the other students when I realized that my logical reasoning class was applied mathematics. So the only thing that was keeping me from doing well in my algebra class was me. It was in my head. And when I realized that, and I realized that I could just put in that extra little bit of work, the extra little bit of whatever, I could do it. And I did that there. I went on to get A's in statistics and whatnot, because I got rid of that mindset that I couldn't do it. So, you know, but I'm personally struggling. You were talking about social media. I'm personally struggling with that right now because I can't get my head around it. Um, And I think for me, it's because it's more me out there. So that's where my discomfort comes in. Barbara, I was going to, I was going to tell you something really quick. When my daughter was in school, like in, you know, let's say high school to college, she didn't do very well in high school at all. And I always said, Jasmine, you're a discouraged learner. So that was, you know, she was, it's not that you're not smart. It's that you're just a discouraged learner and whatever it was, they couldn't figure out, she couldn't figure out the, the system and the system couldn't figure out a way to help her. But she went to college and all of a sudden, you know, she's doing, she's doing the same thing. She's in statistics classes and she's writing and she's doing all these things. And it's like, now you're an encouraged learner. You know? <laughs> so it, it really is though. It's about, it's about, I think sometimes we just need a little push, like a little, you know, a little cheerleader. But when you when your brain just, it's like, it just clicks. And as soon as you said that about the logic thing, I thought all that left brainy kind of stuff goes right into your building, which is the mm-hmm. math and the logic and the rational. That's, that's very left brain. So it stands to reason that you would have found yourself excelling once you just kind of said, yeah, Hey, Hey, guess what? I'm good at this. Yeah, right? Well, yeah, I think a big piece of this has to do with not just tenacity, but but I certainly think that's a big part of it. But I think the other side of the equation is passion. You've got to want to do it. Mm -hmm. You've got to enjoy it, and you've got to want to do it. 
the, the other aspect of this too, and this, this falls on both sides of that, both tenacity and passion. Last year, Joey, I don't know if you were around for this, but uh, Yo-Yo mm. Ma played here in town. Oh, wow. just, just fantastic. Just incredible. And, you know, of course, you look at someone of that caliber and you think, I could never do that. I could never do that. <laughs> but you know what? His father was a classical violinist. His mother was a singer professionally. He began playing at three. And he played for the rest of his life every day. Mm -hmm. Tiger Woods' father was a golf coach. He started practicing when he was three years old. Bobby Fischer, grand champion <laughs> at age 15, started when he was six. Had great coaches, and they trained him all that time period. Now, you can say, oh, my God, Tiger Woods is so talented. Well, okay, fair enough, but it's also amazing what 34 years of practice will do for your golf game. Yeah, they had a passion. I think what happens to us sometimes is as kids, we find something we like, and so we start doing a lot, and suddenly we're, we're good at it. What do you think, Joey? Yeah, I was just, um, I've been doing my other, one of my other talents is I've been doing Kung Fu for almost three years now. Ah. And I think that the, the primary thing that's kept me there is the environment. The environment is very open. There's literally no such thing as a stupid question. You might get like a side glance, like, all right, dude, really? You just asked this <laughs> question. But most of the time, nobody's going to be like, what are you, stupid? You know, and they, we help each other out at every step of the road, no matter what, even if it's something that we should already know. And there's, no, there's never any putting anyone down. And so when you're in that environment, it makes it much easier to really grasp something. And then if you add on top, You've add on top the fact that I've probably done one punch, 5,000 repetitions of it in the three years that I've been doing it. And the three years that I've been doing it, I technically am at like probably about a five-year proficiency because I just learned to fail on purpose. Just fail on purpose over and over again, and you'll speed up the process. And fail you better. Know? Isn't that what yeah. they say? Fail better. Mm -hmm. You know, I have a friend, and he is a potter, you know, a, a clay, clay potter, and I remember this very distinctly, and, and, and he said, oh, you know, people always ask me, gosh, you know, how'd you get so good at this? And he said, well, I apprenticed with a master potter. And the first thing he said was, go throw a thousand pots. And, you know, come back when you've thrown a thousand pots. Mm -hmm. I don't want to talk to you until you've done that. Sort of like, you know, the guru on the mountain, you know, go do, go do this thing. And he said, and you know what? The 999th pot was kind of as crappy as the first one, and the thousandth one was perfect. Mm -hmm. So it, it, there is that, that if you don't try. But the other thing I was going to say is I think one of the things that's, that's very encouraging now with children especially, and, and adults also like the kung fu thing, but, you know, when we went to school, there was like, you know, blame and shame all the time. And now it's like, we're going to get in the circle of love. It's going to be kumbaya. And there's no, you know, we're going to be gentle with each other. And you don't get to mm. call anybody stupid or whatever. There's no stupid question. And everybody is made to feel, you know, warm and enveloped and, and loved, if you will, you know, and appreciated for whatever it is that they bring. And I think that's, that's a huge change and it's a good one. I think absolutely that's mm. true. 
I think that's absolutely. And that's, again, goes back to the factors that come to bear on us as young people. And some of us are more fortunate than others that things get nurtured. Uh, I think I was very fortunate to have a father who was a small businessman. He pounded that ethic into me and it worked. It worked and, and I enjoy what I do. But I don't think that would have happened if somebody had been giving me a lot of grief for taking risks and right. giving me all types of cautionary statements. Okay, I, I want to tell my Annette story. So I get so excited that Annette is a pumpkin carver because two years ago or a year ago, I carved two pumpkins. I was really proud of them. I was really, really proud <laughs> I, of them. I, I was so excited pictures. to show Judy. I, you know, and I stuck them out on the front porch and they did. They looked really cool. So yesterday, I'm looking at Annette's pumpkins. She's got them, the pictures on, on her site. And by the way, I'm going to post those in the show notes. I was so going to ask you. Yeah, I'm going to post. Um, I'm going to post some uh, some walls on a sound booth. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Joey, maybe you should do five minutes of stand up for us. But yeah. when I keep it keep it PG, honey. <laughs> then when it's not going to happen. <laughs> when I saw Annette's pumpkins, my first reaction was embarrassment. My first reaction was, oh my God, mine are terrible. Now, that is the worst possible reaction, especially from a fellow that's about to put together a podcast. I'm not doing that to yourself. Right. So I think that's almost somehow innate. I have done it one time. And, and I'm surprised that mine don't look like somebody who's been doing it for 15 years. Right. But we do that to ourselves. We do that kind of thing to us, ourselves continually. So my final question for everybody is, how can we take the things that we're talking about, passion and talent and persistence and even failure, and use them in a way that's beneficial to us in our travel practice. My guess is that most people get into travel because they're passionate about travel. So we have one piece of the puzzle covered, but what about the others? What do we do? How can we think, apply that, Joey? I think it's just to be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself where you are in your whatever skill it is. If it's in travel, um, know exactly where you stand, why you stand there. And if you want to go further, you're going to have to put more work into it. Exactly. It's as simple as that, really. <laughs> yeah. Barbara? I think what I see with a lot of agents is that they're kind of all over the place. So you need to, I think, figure out what kind of travel you like to do. So me building the sound booth, I said this to you yesterday, Richard, um, I build a lot of Europe FITs and I build them all myself, all the components, all picking the suppliers, picking everything. So building my sound booth was very similar to that. It was just using different materials. So what are you good at in real life, your own outside life, and then bring that into your travel business and figure out how you can kind of dovetail the two. Annette, do you have any thoughts about that? Uh, I do. I have two um, thoughts. One is 
slightly contrary to the others because I know you know some agents who are like strictly let's say cruise agents like they're they're very focused on one area and one area only and they don't want to look at other areas because they're not comfortable with them which I totally get but at the same time they're not comfortable with them because they don't do them so it's a matter of uh, they tell them themselves and they tell other people, oh, well, I, I can't sell Europe because I don't know anything about it. Well, why don't you know anything about it? Well, because I haven't looked at it. Well, why haven't well, you looked at it? Why haven't you looked at it? Right, right. Yeah. yeah. So um, then you get into a situation like, like now where, okay, well, I mean, nobody ever would have thought that there would be a time when cruises weren't sailing. But, you know, those people who I know who are like dedicated cruise only agents are having like a much more difficult time Certainly. now because they, I mean, everything's up in the air. Nobody knows what's happening. And like, because they have become so focused and so specialized, they're feeling very lost. So, but the, but the reason they take a look and they say, well, I can't do anything else. Well, you, you can, you just need, it needs patience, it needs persistence, and it needs, you know, some, some time to go and take a look at, at what there is and get yourself familiar with it. The other area that I see this as kind of being applicable, totally aside from areas of expertise, is just in things that some people just aren't comfortable talking with clients about, or to say things like, oh, planning fees. I have a, you know, hear a lot of the, well, you know, do you charge a planning fee? Well, no, I don't like to talk to my customers about that or my clients because, uh, well, you know, they, they might blog about this and they're, they're feeling uncomfortable about talking about it. Well, you know, your time is worth money. And the only way that you're going to get comfortable with talking to people about it is by talking to people about it. I'm finding that the few clients that I have been interacting with have actually just assumed I'm, I'm charging fee and, yes. you know, and their understanding. And, uh, you know, so I, j I think as an industry, we are going to have to address that and just kind of uniformly move forward with fees. None of us can survive another year and a half with no income like we've, we've already had, you know, so we're going to have to address that as an industry. You know, Richard, I used to have a boss, and this was when I was uh, selling flowers on the telephone back in the day, uh, wholesale. But his famous line was this, if all you pay are peanuts, all you get are monkeys. You know, and so <laughs> if it's too cheap, you know, it's like if, if it's expedient, whatever, it doesn't matter. But the idea is, yes, it's overcoming that psychological barrier of I'm not worthy. I'm, uh, you know, uh, Heidi is like, no, you know, I've put a lot of time. I've put a lot of money. I've put a lot of energy into this career. And I've, I'm very knowledgeable about, you know, my areas of expertise and being confident enough to say, and what I'm giving you is something money can't buy because I'm going to give you peace of mind. And I, I think when we get to that as an industry, when we really get to that, some agents do it phenomenally well. And some people really do. Oh, I'd never charge a fee. I couldn't do that. You know, my clients come to me for, you know, value and bargains. And it's like, no, really, you think that's why they're coming to you. But what they're coming to you for is, is the thing that you're actually not really giving them, you know, if, if you're not valuing your valuing yourself enough to, say, and, and here's, here's my fee and here's why, you know, and here's what you I know, bring, bring to that. Yeah, I started getting comfortable with it last year when I started putting it in terms of, okay, my time is finite and am I going to spend it with a client who values me? And if I'm not spending with that, I can spend that time with my husband, my grandkids. I can do something that's, that's life affirming for me. And 
So when I, you know, put those side by side, if somebody's not going to value my time, I really don't want to work with them. Right? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's like, you're, you know, I love this line, your vibe attracts your tribe, right? So you put your vibe out there of this is who you are. And those people find you, they're, they gravitate towards you because it's an energetic thing. And we, that's how we, that's how we do business. That's how we do life is, you know, with people that, that correspond to our own energy, I think. So. And I think you're not going to find the right people if you're not, again, like I was saying earlier, honest about who you are. Exactly. If you're lying about who you are and like covering with a mask or whatever it may be, and you're trying to meet others in the travel industry, you're going to meet the wrong people. It's just like picking a husband. You know, if you're not clear about what you want, you're going to kiss a lot of frogs, right? <laughs> Indeed. Well, on that note, thank you well, thank so you. much. I want everyone to give their passions free range and I want you to stay safe out there. So thank you so much for this. I appreciate thank it. You. Right, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.